0: Welcome to Code recursive where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host. If you're anything like me, then learning how to build software in a sustainable way, a way where you don't continually build up technical debt and have development slow down as the project gets more complex has been a career-long struggle. Big Ball of Mud is the title of a paper presented in 1997 at PLOP, Pattern Languages of Programs Conference. And I think it's super interesting. The researchers went out into the field to see what software architectures were being used in industry. And... Big Ball of Mud is what they found, along with six other patterns with names like Sweep It Under the Rug and Reconstruction, which is the throw it all away and build it again and hope it's better the next time pattern. Anyhow, I think this is a hard problem. Evolving software under constrained resources is always going to be a challenge. And we kid ourselves when we don't admit that it's hard. Today, I talk to Wade Waldron about how to avoid this situation or how to recover from it. If you like the show, spread the word, tell a friend, leave an iTunes review or follow us on Twitter. If you are listening in your web browser on the website, subscribe to the podcast for a much better experience. Wade, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. So, if you were at a dinner party, what would you tell somebody you did for a living?
1: Uh, I'd probably try to avoid that question. Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, it's usually a little awkward to explain that. But um, I guess when I do get asked that question, I I, I usually tell people I'm a software consultant. Um, I'm not sure that necessarily uh, explains things very well, but I guess I guess that's the answer they get.
0: And I, I actually got the request to interview uh, interview you from a listener, um, and I started to dig into uh, these courses you have on the reactive architecture, and I found them to be very interesting. So I'd like to start with this question.
1: What's a big ball of mud? Um, so, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, one of the challenges, I think, with that particular question and one of the challenges with that term uh, is sometimes it'll get kind of get people's backs up, I guess, um, because they hear me talk about a big ball of mud and they say, no, 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 that's not how I build a system. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think it's important, um, when I talk about a big ball of mud like that, um, that I establish first off that this is, uh, I, consider this a worst case scenario. I do not by any means consider this to be the general, uh, case Um, So when I talk about a big ball of mud, what I'm talking about is uh, usually a system that has been built in a monolithic way. Um, So it's been built as a a single application um, rather than a series of microservices, for example. Um, But I'm not talking about every monolith. Not every monolith is a big ball of mud. There are plenty of monoliths that are probably extremely well designed um, and extremely resilient and extremely robust. However... I have worked with monoliths specifically where they were not really well designed and were not um very robust uh and so in those cases those monoliths those particular systems were built in such a way that there was no clear separation between dependencies. Um, so you had you know, every piece of the system was depending on every other piece of the system, either directly through the code or sometimes through the database. Uh, and it's very difficult in those cases to sort of unravel where the clear system boundaries are. Uh, instead, what you end up with this big ball of mud where it's all sort of one cohesive blob uh, and you can't really separate it into smaller pieces.
0: If I have a big ball of mud, what should I do next?
1: Um, Well, I mean, you know, some of that depends on, uh, you know, what your goals are and and what uh, that big ball of mud is doing for you. Um, What I would suggest not doing is throwing away the big ball of mud and starting over. Uh, You know, that's something that I think is often tempting. You look at this big ball of mud and you don't know where to start and you say, well, you know, let's just build a new thing uh, and Mm -hmm. replace the old thing. Um, And then usually two or three years into that project, you realize that you didn't really understand that the old thing to begin with, and now what (laughs) you've got is a a big ball of smaller balls of mud or something like that. (laughs) Um, So what I would usually recommend in that case is to start looking for pieces of that big ball of mud that might be easier to isolate. Um, so, you know, find a section of uh, of the code that is maybe not quite as intertwined as other sections and start looking for ways that you can disentangle that piece of code. Um, what I would usually do is I would start by extracting that out into sort of a separate library or something like that, uh, that you can then, um, you know, basically remove or, or control the references to that library a little bit better. Once you have things sort of separated like that, um, then you can start looking at, okay, now how can I take this thing and potentially move it out of the ball of mud completely? How do I move it into a separate microservice or something like that? Um, But first you have to start by finding that piece that isn't so tightly coupled to everything that the moment you try to move it, it's going to break. And that that could be a challenge. That's not always an easy thing to do, um, but you got to start somewhere. The other thing um, I would highly recommend is if you are in the situation where you have that big ball of mud, Um, don't make it bigger. So when somebody comes in and says, hey, we need this new thing, don't just, you know, jump in and start putting it into the big ball of mud. Look at the possibility of, okay, this is a new thing. Can we build this new thing separate from the ball of mud so that at the very least, we're not making the problem any bigger. Uh, We're maintaining uh, maintaining the existing problem, but moving things uh, in a way that encapsulates them and isolates them better.
0: Yeah, that's a great suggestion. I think that in my experience, the tricky part with that is sort of what if the piece isn't that cohesive, like they want this new thing, but it kind of relates to what's there. Is is there a way to, uh, I don't know, is there there a way to do this without just making um, that new thing, like actually dependent on the monolith, but maybe, you know, across process boundaries, but it's still, it's still tied to it.
1: Um, There are. uh, And um, it's something I have done in the past, Uh, depending on the, I guess, maturity of the development team, you know, how familiar they are with different techniques and and things like that. Um, It may not be a problem. Uh, Also depends a little on what kind of infrastructure you have in place. Um, But, for example, if I use a concrete uh, case that I did, um, we had uh, an application which was a big ball of mud uh, and we wanted to introduce. um, In this case, it was a, a rewards program for the company that I was working with at the time. Um, And with that rewards program, we needed a lot of information that was potentially contained within that big ball of mud. Um, And so what we did uh, in order to make that a little easier um, is uh, we built that uh, rewards system as a separate component. Uh, and then what we did is we went into the existing monolithic application and we found the places where the information we needed uh, was being recorded. We kind of located and isolated those particular pieces uh, of the application. And then we uh, made the application essentially emit an event Um, And this is something that comes from event-driven architecture, which obviously we haven't talked about today, but uh, it's something that uh, reactive systems um, quite often focus on. And what you do is you make that piece of the monolith Emit an event, which can then be consumed uh, later on by your your new uh, piece of the system, um, and so that event can be consumed. You can create your own sort of internal representation of the data as necessary based on what's coming out of that event, and so now you don't have to talk directly to the monolith. Instead, you indirectly consume these events. Uh, those events are probably broadcast through a tool like Kafka or Kinesis or RabbitMQ or something like that, um, and so you consume those events uh and and build up your own model based on that um and that's one way that you can separate yourself from uh, from the monolith and
0: what's the advantage of of emitting events as opposed to i don't know rest calls or something like that
1: so emitting events um is using uh, asynchronous messaging generally um and that's uh that tends to be a little bit more robust for a few different reasons um, one of the reasons that it tends to be more robust is because if you emit an event, um, an event is something that you consume asynchronously. And as a result of that, it means that you don't necessarily require all pieces of your system to be um, active and functional at the same time. So, for example, uh, if, um, in, in the rewards example that I was giving, if the reward service was down, there's nothing stopping me from emitting that event anyway. Right, So I emit the event uh, even though the reward system is down. Now when the reward system comes back up, I can just consume that event even though uh, I wasn't a- alive when the event was emitted. Um, on the flip side, if the system that is emitting that event goes down... Um, that doesn't stop the reward system from continuing to serve any requests that it has to serve. It also doesn't prevent it from consuming any events that were already emitted. Um, so that's one uh, aspect of it that I think is beneficial. It, it actually allows uh, for more flexibility in terms of what's active and what isn't active. Um, there's other things too. Uh, you know, again, because it's asynchronous, it means you become more decoupled in time. Um, and so, you know, that has its own set of advantages. Uh, you're not expecting something to happen right now. You're expecting it to happen eventually. If you expect something to happen right now, then again, we go back into the failure scenario where if something fails for some reason and you need it right now, you have no choice but to fail the whole process. On the other hand, if something fails and you need it eventually, well, now you can you have other options that you can take. You can do retries. You can, uh, you know... Um, wait for the information to become available. You don't have to deal with it. You don't have to deal with that problem right now. So again, um, I think what it does is it allows the system to become more robust and less brittle over time. So that is
0: sort of isolating one service from the other one in time, uh, I think. So you have... Because the, the event could be sitting in a, in a buffer or sitting in Kafka. Um,
1: yeah. Is there other ways that we should isolate services from each other? Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a ton of different ways to isolate services. Um, I, I kind of feel like they boil down to, uh, a few specific ones. Uh, so specifically, I think, you know, isolation in time, I think is, is very important. Um, isolation of state, uh, I think is equally important, uh, especially when you build microservices. Um, and so when I talk about isolation of state, what I mean is, uh, microservices shouldn't share a database. Um, Now, I want to clarify that statement a bit and say they shouldn't share, um, you know, tables and things like that in the database. They may actually all be operating within the same, you know, SQL database or whatever. A Cassandra database doesn't matter, Um, but uh, they don't have access to each other's data uh, through the database. If you want access to each other's data, then you do that by communicating uh, through the API that that service presents. And that helps to decouple services Um, which, again, can make them more flexible. Um, That makes it easier for services to evolve. Um, I've been in situations, for example, where you're isolated, or, or sorry, you lack that isolation. Everything depends on the database. And then you get into this awkward situation where you go, okay, the structure of this particular table is actually kind of awkward, and I want to change it, but... These, you know, seventeen dozen other locations in the application all depend on that table. So if I make a change here, I got to change all those other things, and that's the kind of situation we want to avoid. Um, we'd like to be able to, you know, have the freedom to uh, evolve our database uh, as necessary for that particular microservice, for example. Um, so that's isolation of state. Um, there's also isol- isolation of space. Um, so in that case, what we're saying is. Uh, microservices um, shouldn't depend on the location of another microservice. So this is different from a monolith where uh, if you have a monolith, um, essentially everything is deployed as a single unit. Uh, and so because of that, you know, you might have your reward service and your customer service and whatever whatever other services you have. Those are all deployed in the same location. And the a monolith is largely dependent on the fact that those are deployed in the same location. Now you might have multiple copies of that deployed in different locations. But those copies usually don't know about each other. Any communication happens through the database. So uh, within the individual application, everything is deployed in the same place. With microservices, that's different. We shouldn't necessarily require that a microservice be deployed on the same machine as another microservice, for example. We should be able to have the flexibility to deploy them across many machines. And what that gives us is that gives us the ability to, to uh, scale and to be elastic. So now you know, if we need, uh, maybe our customer service needs uh, 10 copies and our reward service only needs three copies, that's fine. You know, we can deploy as many copies of our customer service as we want because it's not directly tied to the location of the reward service or anything like that. Um, So that's uh, isolation of space. Um, And To make sure I
0: I follow. So you were talking about this rewards example. We can change examples if you want. But so we have a rewards service now. We've broken it out. And so it has its own database. And then, when when a user shops or something that would that would cause rewards to happen, then we would emit events. And then, am, am I on the right
1: track here? Potentially, yeah. Um, so you might have, uh, for example, um, when a customer buys something, um, you would emit an event uh, which indicates you know customer bought something for X amount of dollars. Um, the rewards service would receive that. Um, and then uh, the reward service would potentially know that that m- that, uh, that amount of money translates into this kind of reward, whatever that happens to be. Um, so it receives an event, which is something like, um, I don't know, item purchased or something like that. It receives that and then rewards the events um, or sorry, applies the appropriate rewards based on that event.
0: Makes sense. Um, I interrupted you. You were going to another type of isolation, I, I believe.
1: Yeah. So we've got um, so far, we've got isolation of space, isolation of state and isolation of time. Um, And then the other one we've kind of already talked about a little bit, and that's isolation of failure. Um, And so that's essentially just making sure that you have your system isolated in such a way that if one piece of the system fails, it doesn't bring down the whole system. Um, So, you know, for example, if our reward service fails, well, people should still be able to buy stuff. Um, you know, we don't want to have a situation where our reward system fails and therefore we have to say, Oh, nobody can buy anything anymore. Um, you know, so we want to isolate those failures such that one, a failure in one piece of the system, I mean, it might have an impact on another piece of the system, but it doesn't bring down the whole system. Um, you know, I think, uh, Netflix actually does this really well. Um, and, uh, you know, the, what they have is, um, I'm kind of making some assumptions here based on my experience with Netflix. I've never worked for them or anything, so I don't really know. Mm -hmm. But um, based on my assumption uh, and my experiences with them, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes if you go, if you look at like the My List feature um, in Netflix, sometimes that disappears. I've seen that happen a couple of times in Netflix, uh, where I go to look for My List and it's just gone. Um, (laughs) And I think what is happening in that case is the microservice or the service that supports the My List feature has disappeared. Um, you know, it's failed for some reason, or maybe it's being redeployed or whatever the case may be, it's gone. Um, The rest of the application still works fine. Uh, In fact, um, if I wasn't specifically looking for the My List feature, I wouldn't even know it was gone uh, because there's no like error message or anything like that. Everything just continues to work. I can still watch videos. Uh, I just can't access the list. Um, And so I think that's that's a really good example of how you can isolate failures in your application.
0: I heard uh, another example from Netflix, which I'm probably going to get wrong. But when you when you first go into Netflix, they have uh, like some personalized recommendations. And I guess there's a service that generates that. Um, but it's an expensive thing to generate. So um, it kind of is cached. So when you go in, it'll start generating and it will get shown from the cache. However, like lots of times they just don't have that. You haven't viewed it before. It hasn't been kicked off. It's not in the cache. So they just have a default. They just show here's what we think everybody would like, right? Like everybody likes the movie Ghostbusters. I don't know what they put in the, in the default recommendation, but yeah. it's, it's not per se a failure, but I guess a, an explicit fallback, right? They're like, we're not assuming this is always here.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that is a, it is a representation of a failure of some kind um, because potentially they could have a situation uh, where, for example, maybe that service is actually unavailable and they fall back to the defaults um and you know again that's a great way to hide um or or to isolate a particular kind of failure uh so you know rather than um rather than failing completely and saying look you're looking for this kind of information i can't give it to you what we do instead is we say well normally we give you this you know really rich detailed information but we lack that right now so here's the next best thing we could give you um and and give us that instead and i think i'm not sure again i'm not sure if that's uh, uh, an actual implementation detail that Netflix uses, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, and and I think it would be a really good example as, as well of isolating failures. Yeah.
0: I had a previous interview with uh, Jan. Oh, how do you say his name? Jan Mahachuk. And he was saying like, just making these decisions explicitly is like a big change. Like when we have a monolithic app and like the user service, there's no user service the user part is just embedded in the application. So you never have to make an assumption about what should you do if there's no ability to look up users, but all of a sudden when you split these things up, you can make these explicit decisions and say like, well, maybe, you know, we can have a a read only mode if, if we can't authenticate this user or, or what have you.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think that's definitely true that it's, um, um, it's not always uh, obvious when you're building existing systems, uh, monolithic systems, things like that. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, I teach, I teach a lot of courses uh, as part of my job. And one of the things uh, that I teach in one of my courses is um, I go through the exercise of breaking out a system into uh, separate microservices. And then with the students, I'll actually sit down and kind of talk to them and say, okay, so we've got this series of microservices, right? Now, what happens if this microservice fails? Um, And, you know, sometimes the immediate reaction is sort of like, well, I don't know, I guess nothing works. (laughs) Okay, but what if we wanted it to work? What would we do if this service failed in order to allow it to continue to work? Um, And thats I find that's a really interesting process going through with the students and, you know, talking to them about, um, you know, how could we change this system in some way so that we can tolerate a failure here? And so then we start to look at things like, well, what if we, Um, instead of making a direct rest call, what if we uh, emitted events, consumed those events, uh, and created our own internal view of that data? If we do that, then when that external service fails, it doesn't matter because we have our own internal copy of that data that we can fall back on. Yes, the data might not be 100% up to date, but in a lot of cases, that doesn't really matter. In a lot of cases, mostly up to date is probably good enough. Um, And in most cases I would say mostly up to date is better than I can't help you right now. I'm just going to explode. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think going through that exercise of pointing at different parts of the system and saying, okay, now imagine that fails. What are you going to do now? Imagine that fails. What are you going to do? Uh, I think that's a really good exercise to go through with, uh, with any system, really.
0: Uh, one potential, uh, one potential way to deal with this that I've seen, Go, go badly is this service sometimes is busy so if it doesn't respond in a certain amount of time I'm just gonna retry it and then we have multiple services and they start um, basically knocking something over it starts to get slow so you ask it again
1: have you have you encountered this problem before uh, I have, I've built a system like that, you know, to, to my own shame, I guess. Um, I, I built a system years ago where, um, it would attempt to, uh, send messages, uh, onto another aspect, another area of the system. Um, and then when that area of the system got busy, um, we'd end up getting timeouts. And so we'd, uh, retry and send more messages, um, to an already busy system and things would just get busier and busier and busier. And if you do that enough, then what ends up happening is the busy part of your system just collapses uh, under the weight and, and everything falls over. Um, so, uh, yes, I've definitely encountered this scenario. Um, There is a a solution to that. And I think that solution is to be a little more polite, I guess, on the sending end. (laughs) Um, So, you know, rather than retrying over and over and over again until you kill that dizzy system, uh, what we can do is we can use techniques like a circuit breaker. um, And what a circuit breaker does is essentially... Any requests go through the circuit circuit breaker, whether they're successful or not. Um, but what happens is as soon as a request fails for some reason, it trips that circuit breaker. Um, and so once that circuit breaker gets tripped, uh, what happens is now any requests that come through that circuit breaker just immediately fail and they fail with a message, something like circuit breaker uh, is open or something like that. Um, and so they you get this rapid failure um, as a result. Uh, you know, you could retry as much as you want, but you're not actually putting any load on the external system because the circuit breaker is basically just preventing you from, uh, from sending those messages on. Then eventually after some, uh, predefined period of time, the circuit breaker flips over into, um, uh, into what we call a half open state. And in the half open state, uh, what it does is, um, it allows one request through, uh, just one, not a whole bunch. <laughs> but what it does is it checks for that one request. And if that one request succeeds, then we go back to normal operation. On the other hand, if that one request fails, then we assume the external service is still unavailable for some reason. And we go back to uh, just blocking all of the external calls. Um, what this does is it allows your uh, your system to be, I guess, more polite again to that external system so that you don't just drive it into the ground. Um, and I mean, that's these circuit breakers are something that are... Uh, you know they're implemented in various libraries. Uh, the libraries I work with are things like akka and logum. Um, both of them have built-in circuit breakers that you can use out of the box. Um, there's other libraries that implement them too, though. You know those are certainly not the only ones.
0: You shouldn't be rolling it yourself at this point, I guess. Is the
1: yeah? There's no reason to build this yourself. You know, there's plenty of plenty of options out there for uh, for leveraging circuit breakers.
0: So you have a lot of great principles here about making things work over time, making sure state's not shared. It's it sounds like or to steal your your terminology from your course, that that the goal is to make these services autonomous, like able to stand on their own.
1: Is that a correct characterization? Um, that's definitely one of the one of the major goals. Yeah. I mean, autonomy is a tricky thing, I think, because um, it's a, it's a really nice goal, but not one that we can never or, or ever necessarily reach completely. Like a fully autonomous system would be a very rare system, I think. Um, But the further we can move along that path, uh, the better. Um, So, you know, the closer we can get to a fully autonomous system, uh, the better, because that allows for all sorts of really interesting things. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I guess to provide a bit of a definition, when we talk about an autonomous system, what we're talking about is a system that doesn't depend on anything, right? It, It depends only on itself and nothing else. If you had a system like that, uh, you could deploy as many copies of that as you wanted, um, and there would be nothing preventing it. You would never reach a point where there's a bottleneck or something that says you can't deploy any more of these. Um, that means you could es- essentially scale forever. It also means you'd be totally resilient to any kind of failure because, again, you can deploy as many copies of these as you want, and if one of them fails, no big deal, you have 50 other copies. Um, so you know that allows you a lot of flexibility uh, in terms of being... Um, uh, in terms of building a very robust system. Like I said, it's not—it's usually not uh, easy or even necessarily possible to get to that point. Um, so it's more about moving along that path and going as far along that path as possible.
0: Yeah, I, I think it must be completely impossible. Like is you have to have user input, for example. I guess we're excluding user interaction.
1: I don't... Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes and no. Yes. <laughs> You know, the the trick and the reason why I say it's generally impossible to have this um, is because in order for you to have user interaction, you need some way for the user to know where all of the copies of the server are, right? And so in order for the user to know where all the copies of the server are, you need some sort of, you know, load balancer or something like that in between the user and all of the many different copies. The moment you introduce that load balancer, it's not a fully autonomous system anymore you now have a dependency where the load balancer depends on all the services and the or the, uh, um, the users depend on the existence of that load balancer in order for this to work. Um, so, you know, I think that's an example of where I typically say that it's probably going to be p- impossible uh, to build a fully autonomous system because at some point you're going to have a load balancer or something interfacing with the user. Um, I can't think of a system off the top of my head where that wouldn't ever be the case. So
0: Yeah. it's an interesting, uh, It's interesting game to play. Like, I think you could. So if I were going to make a service and so it has persistent data, but I want it to be totally autonomous. So I guess I would just emit things that would get stored in the database by something else, but at the same time, keep everything cached, like locally within that service. Um, It sounds like a horrible idea, I guess, but it would mean if the database were down, I could just keep emitting these events and use my local cache. But yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would argue that if you have a database, you're not a fully autonomous system. Um, you know, and again, that's where I say that, you know, fully autonomous systems are are very, very difficult, if not impossible to build. Um, because if you have a database, well, now you have a dependency, right? Your system, your, your microservice or whatever it is, depends on the presence of that database. Now, you can improve autonomy there. Uh, so what you could do, and again, this is something I've actually done in the past, is I've actually built a system at one point where, Every instance of my microservice had its own database. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that improves autonomy because now I don't have a shared database. I have uh, independent databases for each, uh, each microservice uh, and each instance of the microservice. Uh, and each one has its own copy of the data and everything else. That improves autonomy, but that's also really expensive. Um, and so that's a, that's another thing that you have to consider when you do this is the further you move along this path to autonomy, oftentimes things get more expensive. And so there has to be a a real value delivered, uh, in order to make this worthwhile. I would not, for example, recommend that everybody go out and build systems that create, you know, fully independent copies of databases for every unique instance of a microservice. Um, that that's probably more expensive than what most people need, but it's something where if you reached a scalability limit uh, and you realized that you know you couldn't go any further because you had this shared database, well, then that might be a place where you could say, well, how can we break that coupling? How can we isolate ourselves even more so that we don't have a shared database? Um, and what benefit would that give us? And is it worth it? Um, but is it worth it is always the key question, I think. So you hit a big question that
0: i have in this area which is like how micro how monolithic um is there guidelines that can be used to decide you know how many services are needed to to serve this customer function or how how do how do we decide how to cut these things up
1: um so i mean i think uh, you know part of that for me is the principles of isolation that we talked about Um, You know, the goal of microservices isn't necessarily, in my opinion, uh, based on size. You know, I don't want to be one of those people who says that a microservice should only be 100 lines of code or something like that. Um, I would prefer to say that a microservice should be as small as it needs to be in order to get the job done and remain isolated. Um, So, you know, there's no... I mean that's kind of a wishy-washy answer in the sense that I, I'm not giving you a concrete answer only that I would say you have to look at your unique use case and say okay we can make this thing more isolated by doing X, Y and Z whatever that happens to be but is that costing us more than the value it's delivering um, and so you know that's that's kind of the key thing is okay so we could you know build our applications so that um, everything shares. a a single database, but they all have isolated tables that they don't access. Um, You know, that's better than having shared tables that everybody accesses. That's more isolated. So we isolate by creating those separate tables. That's kind of the first step. The second step might be, okay, um, are there other options within our database? So can we have, um, you know, different schemas, for example, if you're using like a SQL database, uh, or if you're using a a Mongo database, uh, MongoDB has the concept of, um, databases within your MongoDB. Uh, and then Cassandra, I think the column key spaces. So, you know, different databases have, have additional isolation techniques. And so that's better. You know, again, there's a little bit more of an overhead when you do that. Um, and then, you know, probably for most use cases, that's going to do the job. Um, but then there might be those rare use cases where you really need to scale beyond the ability of one uh, you know, one database instance to handle. And then you start looking at, okay, well, what if I create a whole nother instance of Cassandra uh, that's just there to handle this service or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and at that point, you really have to ask yourself whether the cost to maintain that new thing justifies, uh, justifies the, the benefit that you get out of it. Is the important distinction for microservices, like
0: the complexity of the business requirements and how they how they interact or the actual like scale deployment and the usage?
1: Um, I think it's both uh, in a lot of ways. Um, So one of the things that I think microservices do, do really well is they allow you to isolate complex business logic in one area. Uh, Rather than having it, you know, uh, trapped in your database in a series of stored procedures or something like that, um, that are used by multiple parts of the application, you can have, uh, you know, a single microservice that just deals with this piece of business logic, uh, however complex that business logic happens to be. What I like about that approach is it allows me to go into that microservice and sort of forget about all the other things for a while and just focus on that microservice and that piece of the business. Um, And so I can sort of keep that all in my head without getting lost in the details of what everything else is doing with that. Um, So I think, you know, it is good for isolating business logic. uh, And I think that's very important. Um, You know, I think actually that's one of the primary things we talked about, how big should a microservice be? I think one of the primary things is to look at, you know specific isolated pieces of business logic um, in DDD. We domain-driven design. We use the term bounded context. You know look for those bounded contexts, and that's kind of where you start building a microservice because it allows you to isolate that business logic. Um, so I think that's definitely a very important thing. However, the fact that you've created this isolation and then potentially introduced a, a new level of autonomy that you didn't have before, then enables you to scale in ways that you didn't previously have the ability to scale. So in that respect, this is something that enables scalability. Um, So I think it's, it's a little bit of both. It's both business logic and scalability that drives this.
0: Now, I think the term microservices, I think became pretty hip, maybe around 2015 or something. That's my recollection. And maybe there's a bit of a backlash now, but a long time ago, like maybe 2005, I remember people talking about, service-oriented architecture um is there a difference is it rebranding or um
1: i think to some extent it's rebranding but i would argue it's not completely rebranding um i would argue that microservices are a subset of service-oriented architecture so um service-oriented architecture would be kind of an umbrella term that covers microservices but it also covers other things one of the problems i think that happened with service-oriented architecture is over time um uh, they started building uh, infrastructure around doing service-oriented architecture. So you started getting like these uh, enterprise uh, message buses and, and things like that, um, enterprise service buses. And these would uh, have a lot of functionality built into them. Uh, you know, they would do uh, message passing between different parts of the system. Uh, they would do message versioning. They would um, do API versioning, all, all sorts of different things. Um, And I think that sort of uh, muddied the water a little bit because people got so focused on these enterprise service buses, um, which really wasn't necessarily the original purpose of service-oriented architecture. I think service-oriented architecture, the original purpose was really about isolation, um, which is again, kind of what I've been talking about. Um, But on top of that, you know, some people build applications that they would call service-oriented architecture, uh, but they build them in a monolithic style. So what they do is they build a single deployable unit um, but that, within that single deployable unit, there are multiple, um, uh, multiple services, essentially. And those services communicate with each other through a single uh, or, or rather through uh, discrete APIs. So each service presents an API. When another service needs data, it talks to that API. Uh, it doesn't go directly to, that data, to the database. So they have isolation of state uh, in that respect. What they didn't do necessarily is require that those individual services be deployed independently. And I think that's where microservices are different. Microservices take all of those ideas of isolation of state and, you know, providing um, that, that API and communicating only through that API. But then they also add the additional requirement that says, and these microservices have to be deployed independently. Um, they're not deployed as a single unit. And I think that's where the difference is.
0: And it seems like an all right solution, I guess, like um, deploying these things as separate services isn't necessary to overcome the things you were talking about earlier, like having clear dependencies. It sounds like by the services talking to each other through their external APIs, they've they've covered that um, intertwined dependency
1: um, risk. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, again, going back to the um, principles of isolation that I talked about, um, you know, they cover off the isolation of, of state uh, fairly well. Um, and so that that's a really nice thing. I think just by using service-oriented architecture, you tick that box, um, at least to some extent. You know, maybe there's ways that you don't. But I think generally speaking, uh, service-oriented architecture does a really good job of ticking the isolation of state box um where it falls down a little bit is um uh, not service oriented architecture but that sort of monolithic deployment style of service oriented architecture where it falls down is uh, isolation of space um so again because each individual service is packaged up into a single deployable unit uh so all of all of your services get packaged up, to, up into this one unit that you deploy Um, That means you don't have isolation of space. You are basically requiring that you have, you know, exactly the same number of copies of every service and that limits your scalability and it limits your, um, your uh, ability to handle failures uh, because you can't, for example, say, well, I want 10 copies of my customer service and only three copies of my reward service. You lose that ability because it's all packaged up into one deployable unit.
0: That makes sense. And there's a, a continuous delivery problem, I'm thinking, wherein if you have these four services all wrapped up in one deployment um, and you want to roll out a new version of one of them, uh, like you can't, you have to switch them all at once. So you can't have the old user service still there and the new version of the reward service talk to it.
1: Yeah, and this is one of the things that I think is um, uh, really beneficial from a development perspective is when uh, when you are working with that monolithic deployment style, you know if you 've ever worked in an application that that does that, uh, oftentimes you get into this situation where you know you get like deploy day, so okay everybody we're deploying today, which means nobody change any of the code because we got to make sure that nothing moves between now and when we deploy, um, and then you 've also got this problem where uh, you know, people are kind of talking to each other and saying, "Okay, I got my stuff in. Did you get your stuff in? You know, we got to sync up everything before we deploy." Um, and you know, that all gets very expensive. But then the other thing too is that you get into situations where, um, you know, I need to make a change, and it's just a it's a very small change. It's a hot fix for a bug that I guess got deployed or whatever. Uh, I want to I want to make that change and I want to deploy that. But now we've got this problem that okay, maybe my change is small, and we want to deploy just that change. But we can't. We have to deploy all this other stuff as well. And so, I mean, you know, there's ways that you can work around that to some extent with branching and things like that. But um, it starts to get awkward and the maintenance burden of that gets harder. Uh, What I like about working uh, in microservices is it allows you to say, I want to make that hotfix to that bug and deploy this service. I don't actually depend on anything else. So that's fine. You know, I can make that change to just that one service, deploy it. And that's not going to, I'm not going to have to worry about what everybody else changed in the meantime.
0: The one thing that I think maybe can be worse is when you want to change a service and the things that utilize that service. Like when it was all a monolithic application, it could be a single commit. Um, I I guess the rollout is is a bit trickier perhaps, but but now when it's multiple things, um, if you need to make a breaking change, um, how
1: would you handle that? I mean, I think I think you're right. I think the rollout, um, the rollout of changes that affect multiple services is arguably harder uh, in a microservice based approach than it was in a monolithic uh, approach. Um, I don't I don't think there's any too many people that would argue that. so, yes, I, I absolutely agree. I think that is harder. Again, there's certain deployment techniques uh, that can mit- mitigate that to some extent, like you can do blue-green deploys, for example, where you still deploy each service individually and you deploy uh, each service as some number of copies, but you kind of deploy them all into an inactive cluster and then you flip over from the active cluster to the inactive cluster. So there's ways to to sort of mitigate that, um, but... Uh, it is it is more complicated, I think, is what it boils down to. Um, I, I guess the way that I would suggest um, you mitigate that problem, uh, and, and the way that I have done this, is you support the old API, right? So if you need to make a change to an API of one service, um, and you have another service that depends on that API, when you make the change to the API, you have to support the old API as well. That is harder than it was with a monolith. With a monolith, you would just make the change to the API, deploy everything at once, and uh, and you wouldn't have a problem. Um, so, you know, this is one of the things where, um, when you make the move from monoliths to microservices, you're going to get a lot of benefits. You're going to get some disadvantages as well. And so, it's a matter of figuring out for your particular use case um, do the advantages outweigh the disadvantages? Uh, I think when you're starting to talk about things like scalability, resiliency, things like that, if you've got a system that has to deal with, you know, millions of users or uh, terabytes of data all the time, then we start to get into the situation where, yes, we probably do want to make that sacrifice. Um, On the other hand, if you've got a system that's dealing with like, you know, 15 users an hour or something like that and very small amounts of data, this might be a bit much. You know, you might not need this kind of resiliency and this kind of scalability.
0: Mm hmm. I think that's why sometimes you were mentioning before, like, uh, you know, people having pushback when you say something about their monolithic app, but it, because it's probably started small and delivered a lot of value and then and then grew and grew and delivered more and more value, you know, and, and along the way, you, they're always taking these these little steps to make it better. Um,
1: yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think in a lot of cases you get people who uh, jump in and they they're a startup initially. Right. And when you're a startup, you don't have any users. Um, But then over time, that user base grows. You know, maybe you get a few hundred users, a few thousand users, you know, up to a few million users, whatever. At some point, your application starts to break down um, because uh, you didn't build it under the understanding that you would have, you know, that number of users. Um, So, uh, you know, I I think that does happen. Um, And I think uh, that is one of the things uh, where you start to get pushback is... um, When, you know, a startup is first uh, jumping in and they've got, you know, no users or a very small number of users, um, doing a lot of this kind of stuff might be really expensive um, and and really time consuming uh, and not worth it, uh, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the thing that they have to consider, obviously, is, okay, so we don't have any users right now, but where do we want to be in a year? Um, You know, if if our goal in a year is to be at, you know, 10,000 users or whatever it is, Um, are we going to be able to support that given the infrastructure that we've built? Um, If our goal is to be at 10 million users, are we going to be able to support that given the infrastructure that we built? Um, And so, I mean, obviously, I guess everybody wants to be at 10 million users, but, um, you know, being realistic about it, uh, is is that a likely scenario? Um, And so, it's about figuring out, again, uh, how much is worthwhile right now? Is it worth going through all the effort right now so that we can be prepared in a year for when we get to the scale that we want to be at
0: and the tricky thing i think in that startup mode is is maybe you don't really know what the future is going to hold because you need to get input from the customers. so this reward example like you may have an idea that a reward system is is a good idea but you may actually build it and nobody uses it and then want to remove it um so i think that's that's why sometimes you know oh we'll just add it to the existing code base because we don't know if it's a thing yet like this this is just a proof of concept to see if users engage with this feature
1: yeah and I think that's okay um, as depending on how you do it um, so again if, if you're in the situation where you've got you know this big ball of mud um, you know style architecture um, then I think uh, uh, I think at that point you really have to be more careful you shouldn't just make the ball of mud bigger. Um, That's not to say necessarily that you can't add the existing functionality into your existing monolith, maybe just to uh, save on deployment uh, hassles and things like that. But what you should do in that case, if you're going to add it to that existing monolith, you should add it to the monolith in an isolated way. And so that means, you know, kind of talking uh, along the lines of the uh, service-oriented architecture style of monolith, where... You create the reward system inside your monolith, but you provide an API, and every other part of the monolith that needs access to the data goes through that api they don't go through they don't go directly to the database, so then your reward system has its own isolated section of the database that it's fully in control of, and nobody gets to talk to that database. they just go through the API what you 've done now though is you've put yourself in a position where if it turns out this reward thing does turn into a big deal, um, now what you can do is you can say, well, we've already got the tables and everything isolated. Nobody's accessing those tables except through the API. The API is already defined. It's clear. It's consistent, whatever. Let's just pull that API out into a microservice. Um, And now we can do that. We can pull it out into a microservice without a whole lot of hassle. And now we can start playing with the scaling options that we've talked about already. Um, and so that gives you the flexibility to do that. The key is, again, don't make the existing problem worse. Always look for ways to, uh, to make it better than it was before.
0: And I think that gives a great segue to your um, opinions on this hexagonal architecture. So if we're building a, a single app, like how do we build it in such a way that the dependencies are not tangled?
1: yeah, so uh, hexagonal architecture, um, I think is a, a really interesting thing, uh, something that I use heavily when I build my own applications. Um, and what hexagonal architecture does is it sort of divides your application um, along uh, clear boundaries. And so you have um, kind of at the the center of the application, you have your domain. Uh, and your domain is like basically your business logic. It's, it's all the things that are critical to the operation of your business. Uh, the rules that are associated with that business, the decisions that you have to make, all of that kind of stuff falls into your domain. Um, at the outside, the very outside edge of that, uh, the very outside edge of your system, you have all the infrastructure you need to make the system work. And so that's you know things like your database, uh, your user interface. Uh, you know if you're using any kind of messaging platforms, uh, you know your messaging platforms will be out there. Um, you know so that any any of the technology that enables you to uh, to make your application work, those kind of fall into the infrastructure category. And what hexagonal architecture does for me is it allows me to make very clear distinctions between what is domain and what is infrastructure. Um, And so essentially what you do is you say, okay, within the domain, I'm not allowed to have any dependencies on infrastructure. So my domain doesn't know what kind of database I use. It doesn't know I'm using SQL. It doesn't know I'm using Cassandra. It doesn't know whether I have a a REST API or a user interface-based uh, on a website or something like that. It doesn't know those things. Those are all infrastructure. All it knows is things like, you know, when, uh, I get a request to reward a customer, uh, because they purchased something, this is how many reward points I will give based on, you know, the amount of money that they spent. That's a business rule. Um, so what hexagonal architecture does is by forcing you to say your domain can't depend on your infrastructure. Um, it forces you to introduce layers of isolation uh, that then uh, enable you uh, to make interesting decisions later on. Um, So for example, uh, you need stuff out of a database. I mean, that's going to happen at some point, but you don't need to know what kind of database it is or what that database looks like. You just know, for example, in the reward system, you need reward points. Um, So you know that there is an API that you can call that gives you reward points. Uh, You build an interface or something in your application that does that. Then you have an implementation of that uh, within the infrastructure that says, well, this happens to talk to SQL, or it happens to talk to Cassandra, or whatever. Um, Now that you've done that, you've created that separation uh, between the domain, which just says, I need a way to get reward points, and the infrastructure that says, I get reward points out of the database. Now that you have that separation, you can start doing interesting things like saying, okay, well, I realize that the database representation that I used here was actually very inefficient, so I'm going to rewrite that database representation. None of my domain code changes because your domain code is still just getting reward points. Uh, You're only changing that infrastructure layer, um, and so that allows for a lot of flexibility. Um, I've done systems that use hexagonal architecture where... Uh, for example, I have changed the underlying table structure uh, of something in order to make it more efficient uh, without, you know, basically just rewriting one class, and that's that class that's accessing the database, uh, what we would call a repository in domain-driven design terms. Um, so I've changed the implementation of the repository. The domain code stayed exactly the same. Um, I've also changed to a totally separate database. So I've gone uh, for example, from MongoDB to uh, a SQL uh, database. Um, and again, The domain code didn't have to change. Nobody uh, using that uh, service had to know that that change was made. Um, No no other services had to change because everything's isolated in state. Um, I've gone further than that, though, because uh, on the flip side of that, if your infrastructure layer says, um, you know, I am operating through a REST API and I'm making calls into that domain, that domain presents sort of a clear API that says, this is how you talk to that domain, now what I can do is I can do things like say, OK, well, originally I had a REST API, and it made these calls into this domain. But now I don't want a REST API. Now I want an event-driven system. Well, it just makes the same calls into the same domain. So you can add additional endpoints, You know, maybe a REST endpoint, and then a, an event-based endpoint, and then maybe later on a, a user interface-based endpoint. They're all talking to the same thing. Um, they're all talking to the same domain. And so you can make those kinds of changes. You could potentially do things like rewrite the entire domain, and as long as that interface that you've provided, as long as that API to the domain remains consistent, you don't have to change anything on the infrastructure level. So there's lots of flexibility that comes when you do this properly.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and it seems to have a lot of principles that are great for keeping these uh, dependencies from from um, well keeping the dependencies from being too uh, coupled to each other. One thing I didn't understand about it is uh, I don't understand why it's a hexagon. Um, like I saw a picture of it. There's a hexagon in the middle. It says domain. But at the six sides, I don't really understand where the six sides come from.
1: Yeah. You know, to be honest, I'm not sure. That's a good either. <laughs> um, it, when uh, when I first started learning hexagonal architecture, um, I was uh, introduced to it uh, in with three different names. Um, So I was introduced to it with the name hexagonal architecture, um, which I found very confusing for the same kind of reason that you, uh, you expressed what's, why is it a hexagon? Um, I was also introduced to the concept of ports and adapters, which is another name for it. Uh, And then I was introduced to it as onion architecture as well. Um, In some ways, I think onion architecture represents my understanding of it better, uh, which is you have these different layers you have. So the inner layer is the domain Uh, outside of that you have the uh, uh, what you would call the API layer, and then outside of that, you have the uh, infrastructure layer, and and the dependencies uh, in these layers go from the outside in. So infrastructure depends on API, API depends on domain, but never the other way around. Um, and I think logically, in my head, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really sure why the original hexagon. I'll
0: I'll figure it out. And I'll put a, I'll put a link somewhere, but yeah, I think what you said makes sense where it makes it easy to put in different implementations, um, which could be various sides perhaps. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, I saw here on your Twitter, it says that you're a science fiction author.
1: Um, I do. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would say I'm a, uh, author to some extent, uh, of a little bit of science fiction, fantasy, um, so yeah, I, I do a bit of writing on the side, um, nothing published. Um, uh, but I've written, uh, I've written one novel, uh, which I'm kind of in the final stages of, uh, polishing up before I maybe start, uh, start farming it out to publishers, but, um, and you know, working on other projects here and there. That's awesome.
0: What, who's your favorite, uh, author uh, right now?
1: Uh, favorite author right now is, uh, Brandon Sanderson. Definitely. Um, He's written a number of books. Um, I think uh, my favorite by him is the Mistborn Missborn trilogy, which is absolutely a fantastic series of books, uh, which I would highly recommend to anybody uh, if you're interested in uh, if you're interested in fantasy at all.
0: I've never heard of it. I, I read a lot of science fiction, but uh, not fantasy as much. I'll check it out though.
1: Brendan Sanderson uh, dabbles in a little bit of uh, science fiction. Um, He's primarily a fantasy author, but he's had some short stories and things like that, that are are more science fiction oriented. I think Um, I I would say I probably read more fantasy, um, but I do read a little bit of um, a little bit of science fiction here and there as well. Um, I think my uh, favorite science fiction book, uh, actually that could be a tough one. It probably is between Dune, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune and um, Orson Scott cards, uh, Ender's Game. Uh, would be kind of my top, my top ones.
0: Oh yeah. Those are both, both great books. At some point I read uh, all the Frank Hebert books, Herbert Hebert. I don't know. And I, and I loved them. They're great. So, so much detail in his uh, world that he created.
1: Yeah. To me, um, Dune is kind of the science fiction equivalent of uh, the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) You know, that, that intense world building.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. Well, before we uh, wrap up our talk, I wanted to say that uh, your your course that you're building is really great. I went through uh, quite a bit of it and uh, I like the structure. I love watching uh, tech talks, um, but the thing I liked about about your structure you have is there's a talk portion, there's questions, there's answers. It makes it a little bit more uh, engaged than just watching like a
1: several hour talk. Uh, I thought it was great. I Yeah, I think that was one of the things that we uh, really focused on when we were building the course uh, was a a couple of things. One is everybody learns differently. You know, so some people learn by watching, some people learn by listening, some people learn by reading, some people learn by answering questions and things like that. So we wanted to sort of hit as many of those different learning um, approaches as possible with the course. Um, But the other thing too is I didn't want the course to be something where you can just sort of like, put it on in the background and tune out and not really pay any attention to that, to it. I do that all the time. I'll start listening to something and I sort of wander off and don't pay attention to it. I wanted this to be something where you come out the other end and you have actually absorbed the information. And so that sort of necessitated um, the introduction of the questions. Um, We also try to find ways to use the questions as a, uh, a bit of a learning experience as well. So
0: The, the thing I liked was your, um, well, the thing I liked was it takes a case study approach somewhat with this reactive barbecue. Uh, yep, it just made me want barbecue to be honest. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, I, I actually so we do um, uh, we do uh, in person training of the uh, this same course. It's not exactly the same, but we have an in person version of it. The exercises are all very different, uh, much more interactive, obviously. Um, but, uh, one of the things that I did during one of the teaches, uh, I think about a year ago, uh, is I spoke to the organizers of the, of the conference where I was teaching the course, the, uh, it was the reactive summit. Um, and, uh, uh I spoke to the organizers and uh, specifically said, Hey, can we, uh, organize some sort of barbecue meal, uh, you know, during the, uh, during the course at some point, particularly because we were teaching in Texas. Um, so it was sort of like, okay, we're teaching the react to barbecue in Texas. I mean, come on, you have to have barbecue <laughs> at some point. So, uh, so they, they came through though. Uh, and we, we indeed actually had a nice barbecue meal, uh, the one day. So it, it was, it was really nice for that.
0: It would have been funny if actually the barbecue ordering site went down during the process because it fits right into <laughs> yeah. your case study. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Well, maybe not funny when you're hungry. All right. Uh, Wade, thank you so much for your time. It's It's been a lot of fun.
1: Uh, yeah, no, it's been great. And, uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned the course. Uh, I think at this point, we have three uh, pieces of the course out, but we've got another um, another bunch coming. So, you know, uh, keep your eyes out, I guess, for the rest.
0: Yeah. And actually, let's just touch on that. So there's uh, what are the three courses you have so far?
1: Uh, So the three courses are basically, uh, the first one is kind of an introduction to reactive architecture. Um, The second one is domain-driven design. uh, And then the third one is all about building reactive microservices. Awesome. Um, And so that's part of one training path on the uh, uh, IBM Cognitive Class. Uh, So the training path is the Lightbend Reactive Architecture Foundations um, so we're going to be, uh, launching another training path shortly, uh, which will include, uh, another three courses. So
0: that's great. I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode.
1: Yeah, great. That would be awesome. Well, that is the show.
0: I would like to thank everyone who helped share the last episode with Philip Wadler. It got some great attention on Reddit, our programming where there were lots of interesting comments and critiques. If you made it this far, you must have enjoyed the show. So tell a friend about it, mention it online somewhere, Uh, whatever you can do, uh, it helps grow the show. Talk to you next time.